Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. That was good. That was slightly better than your introduction last week. Yeah, I was, I was much more on the board. I was prepared for you to ask me that, at least to set me up to say it. I feel like you could have been prepared in the first episode too, but <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess, I guess it's a learning curve. Guys, by episode four, this is going to be so smooth. We're joined for this episode by Liz Simi, who is the co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, a boutique ESG specialist headquartered in Toronto, Canada. Now, some of you would have been triggered by those three letters already and maybe be tuning out. Don't. It would be my advice, obviously. Um, obviously, it's a topic that uh, can be divisive. Some people love it. Some people are very, very sceptical of it. And for those of you who are sceptical, stick with it because Liz, whilst being an ESG uh, manager herself, is um, probably one of the most cynical, sceptical people of how the broader asset management industry is doing this kind of investing. Uh, she doesn't pull her punches in this interview. Names are named. Some companies borderline libeled. So um, there's a lot in there uh, for both fans of this style of investing and I would say uh, for, for people who, are, who aren't such big fans of this style of investing. But yeah, it was, it was great to have Liz on the pod. Uh, we really enjoyed her company and we I, th- I think we learned a lot, Frank, didn't we, about both some of her mistakes and some of the bigger mistakes made uh, in ESG investing at the moment. Yeah, I, def- I definitely back that up. Also, I, I found Liz, you know, without from running it, I found her uh, refreshing. I'm in that sort of slightly cynical camp when it comes to uh, asset managers in the past sort of 12, 15 months, all bigging up universally their ESG credentials. Uh, where Where were they before? before it was cool, before it was making significant money to be ESG. Um, so uh, I think uh, listening to, to someone like Liz, who's been in the game a long time, uh, was was great. And also, as you said, doesn't hold back. Yeah. And I was interested to know, you know, have you made many mistakes ESG-wise? Have you, you know, I, th- I think we've all kind of, you know, like, like, like these big Johnny-come-lately asset managers, uh, we've all been thinking about it more over the last two, three years. Um, interested, I know you rel- you're, you're a relatively active investor of your uh, retirement savings. Uh, have you shifted uh, any, any of those uh, sort of along ESG lines over the last few years, or have you, have you resisted that, that, uh, that trend? Yeah, so uh, actually it's a good question because a, f- a few years ago I did uh, start the process of trying to completely divest my entire portfolio from fossil fuels and I got about uh, halfway through the kind of research into how to do this and realised I would have to sell everything I owned and then spend a lot of time trying to figure out what what to put it in that I liked as much and that seems like really lazy because this was at sort of a time obviously I'm in Europe you're in the states they don't care about ESG in the states but here in Europe we whoa, bomb- whoa, 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 come whoa. on sorry come sorry on. They, 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 they care less they care less they maybe do in your neighborhood Brooklyn but maybe not universally throughout the country yeah this is the big big overweight in sort of granola in my in my hood yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, I realised it, it was it was it was going to be a real challenge to, uh, to 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 cash out, and it was this was sort of peak David Attenborough plastics in the ocean moment where I was having a real crisis of conscience of why am I not recycling enough? What's going on? I'm not saying it's obviously for the best. We're heading inexorably towards this low carbon global economy, not least because the Biden administration's come in and slapped some big dollar signs next to it. Um, but uh, 
yeah, uh, good to hear what Liz has, has got to say on this. Did you, were your emerge, I, you, I know you're, you're big in emerging markets. Was that a problem for you in terms of trying to divest and sort of get more, get, get greener? Or, or was it universal across the portfolio? Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty much universal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. No, no. Uh, subsequently, have bought a tech ETF, and tech is cleaners, uh, cleaners houses. So is that is that yeah, a phrase? Yeah. There's no problems there. No social or governance issues whatsoever. But that's but that's that's one of the big issues. You know, everyone points to tech, and they, they all come out AAA rated in terms of their ESG credentials. And yet, you know, does Microsoft recycle the components from its laptops or whatever? No, absolutely not. And ev- everyone's slightly to blame. But there's a definite sea change both in investment and the end consumer of products attitudes towards ESG. They are demanding that of companies and ultimately that's what's going to bring about the change. On that note, I think we should uh, move with with relative haste to our interview with Liz. Uh, We started by asking Liz, as we do all our guests, about her biggest investment mistakes. I think I'm a non-typical investor, so you're going to have to We're going to have to go back to uh, my teens. So as a teen, I inherited a couple grand, not inherited. Our grandmother gave us a couple thousand dollars to play with, to go travel, do fun stuff. Um, And and my sisters and I decided to put it into the market and not like Robin Hood YOLO stuff, but like put it into a fund. My my father happened to work for an investment counselor at the time, so we put... I remember putting $1,000 into, I don't remember if it was a U.S. or global equity. doesn't matter. It wasn't a Canadian equity, that's for sure. Um, and it was 99 And so at some point, six or eight months later, the balance was $620. And I cashed it out. And I didn't really think that much of it, other than I didn't invest um, in the market any time after. I mean, I didn't have any money. I was in college. Like, what was I going to be investing um, but I, in retrospect, I think that was so important for my perspective um, as an investor, as a professional investor, both both how kind of my career in, in, in research and, and quant, that in addition to that experience gave me a very interesting perspective, I think, coming into long only active management in, in it, it really... Um, it also like the whole financial planning spectrum. I shouldn't have invested that money. I should have just spent it, right? It, it, but when I invested it, I should have. It should have stayed in. That's what an investment was. So, so many folks get that wrong in the industry, even professionals. But obviously, you know, that's a, a big. Uh, a, well, I mean, like folks jumping in and out of cash all the time. Um, and I think it's really. I think what I learned was volatility in the short term. How How old were you when you did this? Uh, ninety nine. So I must have been eighteen. So that wasn't a kind of an age question. It's more, I'm, just, I'm impressed by any 18-year-old investing there in their money. And how long did you keep it in for then? How long? I'm, I'm sure it was less than eight months. I'm sure it was, it was I, was, I was trying to figure out, I don't have the old statements, but I was trying to look at what the market was doing in that period. So I'm pretty sure I put it in like the exact peak um, and then it was down 30 or 40% uh, by the spring. So it was somewhere in the kind of five to eight months range. Do you, do you do you remember what you did with uh, the remaining balance? Uh, I honestly, I probably bought clothes. Like the, I don't know what I was. You know, you can't drink at eighteen in Canada. Very, you know, the the, the, the it was. Uh, I probably spent it if it made it to Frosh Week. I'm sure I spent it all in Frosh Week. But uh, that's uh, that's it. It's 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 so fascinating because it's both the market teaching me how you know how it goes up and down, but the, the 
you know, the, the cash, like you should not be putting short-term cash. You should not be putting non-long-term cash into investment vehicles, right? And I think folks miss that, right? They think there's a, there's nothing wrong with speculative gambling or whatever on the side, but, but long, in, especially retirement money, um, which is what most folks' investments are, that is, has to be really long-term and you can't, you have to know that it's going to go up and down like that. Um, and it, it's, we need to do a better job of educating as an industry. You know, we, one thing I, I bothers me a lot about ESG is we're, we're, we're pretending to do all this ESG and we're still on CNBC every day talking about prices, this short termism, right. Doesn't help. You know, I understand that folks are trying to sell, um, platforms and, and, and trading and stuff to make it exciting. Um, but they're, they're, they're really, um, they're, they're confusing people, right? The, the short-term speculation being sold as investing is, is, is not, uh, is, is a lesson too many people learn too late. Do you think that it had an impact, you know, in, in terms of, obviously you mentioned in, in your career now, and just sort of thinking about, you know, trying to time the market and being a long-term investor, did it, it didn't put you off becoming an investor though, ultimately, you know, you, you do that for a living now yeah so. i mean i accidentally ended up as an investor you should know i avoided the investment industry because i thought it was all evil um because i'm a progressive millennial and i saw no purpose whatsoever in this industry um even though my father was in the industry so i ended up in market research and i only ended up in investing because uh, my father's shop third person um was american and got divorced and had to go back to America and they needed, uh, you know, the, 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 the generalist trader operations analyst kind of person. Um, but then I fell in love with it. And, and I think, I think my previous experiences, you know, I've always loved manager research, even though I'm a manager, I'm the kind of nerd who likes to go through my husband's pension and pick all the managers and do all the manager analysis. So I've always loved that part of it. I just always thought, it was short term or speculative or, you know, guys, and, and it turns out there's lots of processes like the one we use that don't time the market, that remove the timing of the market aspect, that don't speculate on stuff, that just do good research and hold good companies for the long term as long as they're continuing um, to grow their fundamental, both financial and non-financial um, uh, inputs. And, and so it, whereas if I joined any other shop, other than my father's or, you know, gone the traditional route of an analyst, I would have learned these conflicting kind of beliefs. Whereas, you know, I'm very confident and comfortable um, in, in kind of all these lessons I've learned and, and how they apply to our investment methodology. Not to, um, you know, oh, sorry, Franco, come in. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned education and the industry needs to do more on that. How does the industry compete with TikTok influencers with 10 million followers telling you this is how you time the market. I mean, that's that's happening the whole time. Uh, I mean, to me, the TikTok folks are no different than CNBC um, or, or BNN. I, I, just because you're wearing suits and you're a pro doesn't make you better, I don't know, better serving the world in terms of fiduciary responsibility. Um, I think the investment industry is very behind digitally um, and will always be behind. I mean, they should be the ones paying TikTok influencers. All good brands play, pay Instagram influencers, but the investment industry does not really acknowledge the digital space. So I don't, I, I really don't, I mean, I think they're ridiculous, but I, I don't have a problem with consumers at all creating any material. Um, I think it's weird. I think it's a problem when a registered pro does it and pretends they're not a registered pro. 
Um, I think that's a big problem. I think if I went on, I think if I went on Wall Street Bets and pumped one of my companies and pretend on, under a different acronym to to make some gain, I think that's really irresponsible. But I think. I think that I think the short termism we created it ourselves. We will come on to not things that you've done wrong, but you know, um, away from. So you learn this lesson at, at a sort of young age about t- timing the market and also about being long term. Uh, are there other things you know? And you've got a process now which you you stick with and and you know what that is. But are there still times in your sort of uh, professional career where you haven't made sort of, you know, humongous errors, you know, you haven't deviated from your process, but within that you've sort of gone, oh, actually in hindsight, we could sort of, you know, lessons learned along the way that you can kind of pick up on that you can go, oh, we could do this better. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an ESG one. Um, so, so, and just for context, we run a quantum mental strategy and we believe uh, what folks consider ESG data is fundamental company data. Um, and we, we use a lot of raw primary source data. So when we started in 2018, when we ran our qualification set, so we have about 45 companies that make our qualification set, a whole bunch of banks ended up in the set. In the, in the first year, in 2018, um, I'm going to make up a number. Let's say five of the 45 were banks. And banks are, you, you put them in an ESG strategy, they score really high, great, everybody's happy. The problem is, I mean, banks... Banks, and this is, I think this is true globally, for all the large banks with both capital markets groups and bank sides and asset managers or capital markets or whatever side, the bank sides are really good at, I don't know, environmental processes, uh, gender diversity, racial diversity, not destroying the world too much. The other side of the bank are not. Um, and they, they're trying, I mean, they're selling gender equity products, but they don't have any gender equity. Um, and, you know, one great example, one of the biggest banks in Canada three years ago, their co-op class was 90 dudes. And I was playing ping pong beside them. So I, I literally, I know it was their class and I called their MDs on it. So what we realized is the data that we were getting, the, the results that we were getting in our research structure were elevating the banks. So they were, they were making, they were the banks because they have a big team of box checkers, a big CSR department, lots of people to do marketing, were falsely coming higher in our our, our model. Um, not because the ratings, just because, you know, they, they, they're, you know, one of the biggest issues with ESG, with non-financial data is people filling out the right information in the right place to get to the right database, which is why we use mainly primary source as opposed to when folks pull it, because we see all the time, no rating for one of our companies when we know that that data exists, right? So that's, that's one of the issues. So what we, what we had to do is figure out how to not let all the banks qualify, um, especially the Canadian banks, um, and, and really adjust our, our model to not, you know, companies with industrial uh, outputs and, and more production tend to especially if it's a metal related um, or you know, uh, bigger objects get dinged. So they're more likely to have barriers to get in. So how do we make sure they're more able to get in and not getting, uh, you know, thrown out with, uh, and uh, not getting thrown out in lieu of all these banks making it in. Anyways, we only had one bank make the qualification set this year. So I'm very happy with that. Banks are also kind of just from a from from the way we approach fundamental analysis, traditional fundamental analysis, you know, we um, 
it, their balance sheets are hard to read and they're kind of making stuff up. So that's it, 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 it. We never at my old firm where I trained, we never owned many banks like once in a blue moon one came across. Same thing with energy companies. I mean, that's that's kind of why Honeytree came about because we knew we could run a 20 position equity strategy with no fossil fuel and do fine because um, one does not need exposure to every sector um, despite popular opinion. Um, anyway, so that's that's kind of, I mean, there's been a million ESG lessons. I, I didn't know anything about ESG when we started. Um, I knew everybody was doing it wrong. Not everybody. My partner would kill me when I when I say things like that. Frank, you had some, you, you want to ask about ESG a bit more than you. Well, yeah, I was just just pick up on something you said there without giving away the, the secrets to your success or anything. What, uh, you know, who do you look at? Who do you, who do you respect within the ESG space? What, what data points are you looking at? What third party providers? Is there, is there anyone doing a good job out there? The problem, um, the problem with the ESG data, I don't know if either of you or anybody listening has looked at a combined or an integrated annual report, particularly one that was audited. Half of the ESG data that goes into ratings is uh, policies, awards, hopes and dreams, stuff that actually has nothing to do with fundamental company data. And the other half is, is fundamental company data. Workforce diversity, pay equity, water use, emissions, that kind of stuff. Measurable inputs and outputs that can be tracked over a period of time. Um, and so because nobody was producing that raw data, they had to build these robust data rating sets based on this other stuff. But what's happened in the past few years is everybody started reporting everything. Not everybody, but all the good companies worth buying. Um, and so we lucked out in that we started in 2018. Um, and it's just, it is because we're doing the primary source research. So we rely almost entirely on company reporting. Uh, we could not have done that in 2016 or 2015. Um, we look at all the databases, but often for, for the set that we're looking at, the 45 companies, it's easier and faster and more, uh, you know, somebody might have not have their, their diversity in their sustainability report. It might be on a different web page, right? And so it's not necessarily, and some companies report racial diversity in detail, others don't. Um, that's, that's why the big, you know, if you're covering 150 companies, you can't, you cannot systematize a metric on racial diversity below the board or executive level. We can, I only have to do it for 45 companies. They're all high quality, long-term focused, sustainably growing companies who are reporting this stuff already. Um, so that's, that's the, so in, in, in the next five years, this data is going to be standardized in the financial. So that's the barrier that they face is we're supposed to be PMs. We're supposed to be looking, doing the, our traditional fundamental research and ESG is other. That's the other team or our secondary research. The problem is it's not, but too often, like most of even the big ones, even the, even the firms you know we 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 know a lot of the the esg ecosystem and people say you know x i'm not going to name them but you know x the big end, european yeah, we'll companies the names, yeah but for this part <laughs> listeners yeah i'm gonna pretend we don't yeah. Know. yeah 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 all your all your large fund clients um so pure, and, and, and i'm not we saying no, that no conflicts here um, oh, sorry frank yeah yeah i mean i was just gonna say you know investment in esg particularly where i sit in europe in the uk it's reaching, reaching fever pitch. Anything with ESG in the name, ecology, clean energy, the best-selling stuff last year continues to be the best-selling stuff this year. What happens if 
the types of stocks that have done really well in those sectors that have drawn those investments don't perform for a bit and investors cut and run, what impact is there going to be on the the momentum that we're gaining at the moment? I think there's going to be a lot of examples of exactly what you've said, whether it's uh, renewables, electric vehicles, whatever, where stuff blows up and turns out it wasn't as ESG even as it was sold as, regardless of the investment impact. Um, I think that's a big, big thing. I think it's fascinating, you know, that our industry obsesses over a couple areas and forgets plastic, you know, commuting, all this stuff that that adds to emissions and and waste. And we we get very focused in on um, just net zero and emissions or things like that. We've touched on this a bit already, but we talked about then, so you've got the professional investors making bad decisions, bad ESG decisions, or certainly um, perhaps not sincere decisions. Um, what about the, the, the quote unquote um, end investor? You know, are you, you, you say your sort of thesis is there are some people who really get it. And I guess those people seek out the good ESG investment funds. But there is a lot of money going into those uh, ESG light um, strategies. So if I look at um, flows in the US, you know, especially on the sort of maybe on the more index side where you've got a lot of those strategies that do have allocations to every sector and sort of have a lot of what, what would you call it kind of the the least bad stocks in, in certain categories. Best, yeah, yeah, best, best of sector. a bad bunch. So um, is the yeah, is the end investor making yeah. good ESG decisions here or, 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 or not? Are they getting a bad deal? Some of them are okay. Some of the big bank asset managers and large firm ESG products are okay. The problem is if they're doing the product, okay, then, okay, so now let's go on to their firm, right? So you got a, uh, one of the leading ESG managers in the world. Everybody knows them, big Canadian company, winning all the awards for everything, doing actually pretty good ESG. 14% of their senior decision makers are women. Right. So now we, you know, that's where that's where folks don't understand where it's going to come through. So anybody who works with allocators, especially in the US, Europe doesn't seem to care very much that I'm a woman, by the way. Everybody in the US now has 60 questions on manager ownership and portfolio management team diversity. Um, whether it's a Mercer database or investment or or or, or the the due diligence team. So that's that now then it's supplier diversity. How is Honey Tree? What's our supplier diversity commitment? This stuff is like really new in investing and it's going to dis- not destroy, but it's going to cause a lot of problems for these very large shops who aren't doing any of this. All the companies in our strategy and beyond are doing this, reporting on supplier diversity, building supplier diversity in their their, their construction, industrial, consumer staple, whatever. They're already doing it. They're already reporting diversity. BlackRock's barely reporting diversity. I hate that I have to go like check their sustainability reports because they would never qualify for our strategy. But that's what I mean. It, our, it's the blind leading the blind is is the, is probably the mo- not an appropriate term, but that is what it is. You have you literally have folks who don't understand basic organizational equity or the reason for it launching equity gender equity related products. One thing we try to do, obviously. We start by asking people about mistakes they've made. We focused a lot on bad behaviors, both from our guests and, you know, the wider market and the asset management industry. But I think it's also only fair to ask people about, you know, 
good decisions and good behaviors um so uh, you know but, but before before we end are there good decisions that stand out to you um in your career that you would like to you know i guess i guess brag would be the right word um and then also i suppose if we if we go back to sort of the wider esg industry and asset management industries we discussed you know are there things that are encouraging there there's a lot of things that obviously discourage you there but are there are there some good behaviors which are coming through which you know they might not be there now but you know they're moving in the right direction well i think the easy one is starting the firm i think we're the fourth female founded asset manager in Canada. We've heard we're the fifth long only ESG related uh, firm in the world founded by women, which is kind of ridiculous. So that's why we get an applause for that. Um, also, it's way harder to start a firm in Canada than the US. Um, so encouragement in the industry. So I think organizations can better articulate it. I think organizations, you know, we're still, I mean, there was an article two days ago um, one of the most progressive foundations in Canada who's done the most work and impact is still giving 80% of their foundation dollars to white-led charities, even though their entire mandate is to help Indigenous and Black communities, right? So so that's what I mean. That's So those are the best. It's the best, most like leading the impact conversation in Canada globally. So that's where we are. And so we, we really, we got about 40 or 100% to go. Right. We, we, we're still we're like stalled at 10 percent woman portfolio managers. We're stalled at 15 percent, you know, woman FAs. It's it's three percent women in leadership. And we don't even have racial diversity stats because nobody's tracking them um, at the asset manager level. So I think that my what I've seen is it's not me screaming into the void and other people screaming into the void. It's making sense more broadly to investment professionals. In, in positions of power who are saying, okay, like we know we're gonna get a hundred dudes applying for this analyst role, how do we change that? Cause that's that's what you have to do. And we're lucky, like we we study it in the companies we hold. We know, we know how it works. We know how you go from 10% women in leadership to 25% women in leadership. You, you make it a board priority, you put together a plan and then you, you, you execute it. It's really not very hard, but it, if you're not committed to it, you'll never execute it. Anyways, so it's, we can see it. Um, and, and really the allocators are going to come in and say, you're not getting this ticket because your team has no diversity. We've, we've already heard, we've already been hearing stories um, uh, related to that on kind of the more extreme impact side of things who, who have this built in. But, you know, firms like ours are going to get allocations over firms that, um, you know, lack diversity, which is frankly, you know, I, I just search every ESG firm that comes up and, you know, one of Canada's leading ESG light firms has 42 PMs and one is a woman, right? At some point, you know, they, they got to hire two more. Um, anyway, so I, but, but I do see, I do see hope and change in that perspective, um, you know, among the, the boomers, the, the male boomers and the, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the folks older, the, not that, you know, we're young or anything, but you know what I mean? The, we're like, the, we're the like non-young half. Young. For, for this industry, like, you know. We're, we're yeah, yeah. I feel like a child yeah. most of the time as a millennial I mean, like in this industry. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting you say that because we, we uh, a large part of our audience in the US and in Europe are sort of fund selectors, professional allocators, manager researchers. And um, over the last year, a lot of them have been speaking about 
how they're trying to get more information from the fund groups that they invest with and specifically the teams within those groups uh, to get more information on their own sort of, you know, gender, racial diversity and things. Um, so it does seem to be a focus for them. Obviously, the difficulty then is how they actually hold those firms to account. You know, are they the next year going to go back to firm X and say, oh, still three guys, we're going to drop the fund. I didn't, you know, it, it, it's harder, but they are thinking about it. And then it does seem to be as well, like just finished doing a series of uh, sort of video roundtables with uh, CEOs, asset management CEOs. And it does seem certainly the collection of data, they, they obviously are very aware that they need to have this information. And, you know, it's still, it, I think it would be fair to say it's still more at the collection phase. Then once you get those results, obviously you're going to have to, figure out how to change the, the numbers but 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 there, there does seem to be a, a concerted push there obviously it's not you know going 100 miles an hour the funny thing is they're behind every other industry despite them being the ones selling products with that data as an input which is just i mean you, you like i can't think of a industry that is as far behind as asset management in reporting workforce diversity in their financial statements um it's uh, and it, again, it, that's what kind of bothers me most about this industry. They're literally selling products based on that data and yet don't think they need to do it to provide it themselves. Like, do they not think anybody is considering them for an ESG um, fund? Like, it's, it's fascinating. So it's, uh, it, and again, it's because there's a huge disconnect between the typical person who would be a senior leader at an asset management firm and the end client. You know, and, and the big, it's just shareholders versus stakeholders. One matters more for one and the other matters more for the other. And, and until that conversation is resolved, um, they, they're, there's going to be that gap there. Well, that was our conversation with Liz. Thanks again, Liz, for joining us um, and, and for sharing uh, her mistakes and her, her views uh, of the mistakes made by much of the uh, investment management industry uh, when it comes to ESG investing. And Frank, I definitely, as ever, learned a lot from that. Um, I'm assuming you did too. Was there Were there any sort of particular points that, that you're going to take home as a result of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just coming back to how her biggest mistake was uh, investing at the top of the market, a couple grand, 18, which, by the way, is seriously impressive, as you called out. Anyone investing at that age, you know, and not just drinking. Obviously, she couldn't legally be spending it on that. Yeah. Um, it was a different. But but the fact is, there's there's going to be a generation of investors right now experiencing that same thing in many ways, getting swept up in the you know the Reddit stocks, the hype train that, that's gone on with that, buying at the wrong time, possibly ill advised, and and maybe you know crystallizing huge losses. So uh, I think there's a lot that maybe the is it they call gen zers the people who come after us i think well you, you, gen z in the us maybe gen z over in the uk it's, it's a sort of a translation thing i guess but i'm bilingual so i'll do that for the, for I, the I think i think a lot of their first taste of real investment outside of say bitcoin is is going to be uh is going to be this sort of wave of buying gamestop i, I mean a, cu a couple of things that i also thought were interesting was you know obviously she was very keen to talk about the the errors that that come with being short term and thinking short term in, in investment management obviously she did that on a on a on a relatively small scale at, at age 18 but but she thinks that it's rife within the wider asset management industry whether that's through uh you know cable news channels or social media channels or uh just you know 
more systemic things like quarterly results. Um, I think it's a very difficult habit to, to, sh to, to, to shake, isn't it, though? I think it's certainly a very difficult culture to change. There's lots of reasons why that culture exists. I felt I probably didn't stick up for journalism enough there. You know, like there is a reason why the media is like that. And it's because like it's very hard to put together a show on investing in the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund and holding it for 30 years. You know, it doesn't make it doesn't make for great TV, does it? I mean, you know. Yeah, so uh, coming, coming back to that point about, I think this is actually particular to, to ESG in that actually the time horizons are quite long. Governments coming out saying they're going to be net neutral by you know 2050, car companies saying they're not going to sell an electric car for 2030, when most people can't look past the end of the year and what the stock markets are going to end up at. That is quite tough for investors to think about. There are going to be ups and downs. We've seen this year a massive retrenchment from clean energy type stocks where the flows particularly from ETFs have just come out and that has hit what is actually quite a small space of renewables and uh, of, of com companies of that ilk. But um, I think you've really got to stick with this one. This is a theme that is going to play out over a number of years and a number of decades as we try and stave off you know, what looks like potential disaster. Yeah, I think that's a good point, isn't it? You know, obviously, all investing should be long term investing. Um, but maybe ESG even more so, you know, and maybe there's an education piece that, that, that needs to come with that as that style of investing, you know, rightly or wrongly or sincerely or insincerely, becomes more mainstream. Uh, maybe that's something that also needs to sort of be articulated better um, to, to those end investors. Yeah, and I really like that she, you know, she didn't hold back when it came to calling out companies uh, within asset management and their lack of process. You know, she even said that a complete novice could look at a portfolio that was supposedly ESG and say, "Oh, ha hang on a minute, why is this? Uh, why is this minor? Why is this oil company in here? They're not. They're not the right. The right sort of ways to look at it. Almost like a child looking and asking the obvious question." I'm not saying that, you know, uneducated people are children, but, you know, it's, it's much easier to, without the bias that comes from knowledge, uh, to, to, to be able to see what's potentially wrong with something. You know, obviously there is a, a certain degree of hypocrisy uh, with some firms doing this stuff. I think it is offered insincerely in some places and, and others, you know, like Liz and, and there's other firms out there who are taking it more s seriously, perhaps. It's not a marketing tool for them doing it. So uh, it's not a space perhaps to, to be dismissed, but it's maybe, you know, healthy to approach some offerings with some level of of of, of cynicism so I, th I think coming back to the first uh you know the very f first part of the podcast where we asked her about her her investment errors and where she said you know really it was selling out far too soon and not being long-term enough again frank because because you're far more active than i am in, in, in your retirement savings have you um have you done that? Have you have you gone in hard on something and then, you know, months later when it's not initially panned out, have you cut your losses early ever or do you think about it differently? You know, I, I don't think I have made that mistake. I think typically when I've bought something and I've bought it at the top, I've tended to double down in, in, in the hope that I'm somehow, you know, catching the falling knife. Um, you know, I'm always instead of getting buyer's remorse, I'm always looking for affirmation that, that it was the right decision. So sort of but a bit of confirmation bias in your research and sort of trying yeah, to find right. things, exactly, find exactly. things that support so, and, and I think, you know, I'm obviously not alone. I think the psychology investing, you know, points to the fact that, that you, those are the types of people. It's quite brave of her to just sell at that time. She realized the error of her ways and not just 
leaving it in for longer term. Um, I'm not saying every time I've done that, by the way, it's been the right decision. Sometimes they've just continued to fall. Yeah, there's dangers of being long term as well, I suppose, you know, a long term loser. Um, well, look, thank you. I think that's a great place to end this. Thanks again to Liz Simi for joining us and sharing her views. Um, and it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.